Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery. And that is why the Machinery Digest exists. A no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Idle Chatter. This is the podcast, the show from the Farm Machinery Digest. And as always, I am your one and only host, Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer, coming to you from chilly Catswamp Road in Warren County, New Jersey, which is just outside of the town of Hackettstown, if anyone would care to know. So hopefully the sound of my voice is bringing a a good day to you, or or you had a good day if you're listening to this in the evening, and we are ready to uh, get today's show going. But before I do that, as always, I like to uh, just discuss a few little things. I call them housekeeping, and they're not really housekeeping for you. I guess they're more housekeeping to me, for me. But I would like to give a special shout-out to Dave Fraser... F-R-A-Z-E-R, out of Lockington, Victoria, Australia. Hopefully I did not kill that name. Lockington is pretty easy, even with my New Jersey accent. I know that Mr. Fraser, Dave, is a uh, listener of the show, and he was the impetus for the subject of today's show, unbeknownst to himself. Uh, because he is in Australia, and obviously they're having summer there. I was going to say winter. They're having summer, and from what I understand, uh, a very, very hot and dry and rough summer. And the people, the farmers in Australia, the farmers and ranchers, definitely need our prayers because they're having a terribly hard time. They've come out of a lot of drought, and then they have a lot of uh, a lot of heat. I believe that a week or two ago, don't hold me to it, when I did the conversion, I think it was around 120 degrees. F in some areas of Australia. But Dave uh, is a listener to the show, and I greatly appreciate that, and he contacted me, as as, uh, many of you do. But his son, which sadly I did not get his name, we communicate. I do not have an email address for Dave, and so we communicate through the Twitter account with that direct messaging, and I'm still kind of awkward with that. I'm really not a social media person, but whatever. And uh, and I, he, he had told me and shared with me that his 11-year-old son is starting to listen to the Idle Chatter podcast. So I believe that he has the uh, honor of being the uh, youngest person listening to the ramblings of this dryland farmer from New Jersey. So I want to thank him so much for that. And Dave does a little bit of farming from what I can understand. But he is also, and I know I'm going to kill his name, uh, he's also a farm equipment salesperson at a uh, group 
I think it's called the Rural Group, from what I was able to determine. And he sells New Holland farm equipment in Australia, along with some uh, other brands of equipment. But I think that they're the only brands of tractor, or New Holland's the only brand of tractor they sell. They have some short line stuff, and I don't know if they call it short line in Australia. And okay, uh, here comes the name of the dealership where Dave works at. And I'm going to pronounce it Shukua. It's actually E S C H U C A S S Chu maybe S Chuka Rural New Holland. So if anybody from Australia is listening and you know where uh, Victoria Lockington Victoria is, there's a fellow podcast listener of Idle Chatter in S S Chuka at S Chuka Rural. So. To everyone in Australia, I apologize for killing your names with my New Jersey accent. And, uh, you know, I often wonder, and I do have, and I'm, I'm not saying this, I'm saying this humbly because it's it's hard to believe that this is going all around the world from our little farm and Cat Swamp Road of all places, right? And, uh, but I was just wondering whether the people could understand me with my New Jersey accent, and I mean that sincerely. So uh, I know that I have listeners in Ireland, Austra- a number of them in Australia, uh, different places around the world, and uh, obviously predominantly in the United States and Canada. But uh, but I was just wondering uh, whether they could understand me. But I know a lot of people in the southern United States can't understand me. I Years ago, when it was more rural... I was. I remember I was in Georgia once, down in deep, deep, deep Georgia, way out in the country, and I stopped someplace to get uh, something to eat, and the waitress, who was very, very nice, very sweet, and uh, and she said to me with her southern, southern bell accent, her southern twang, she goes, what, what foreign land are you from? And then I said to her, New Jersey, and then she laughed, and she says, I guess that's, that's pretty foreign compared to Georgia. So anyway, to get back to what we're talking about today on the show is that because, and like I said, Dave, unbeknownst to himself, was the impetus for this, and I wanted to create a show today or deliver a show that would resonate with the audience around the world. It's still extremely cold out in sections of the Great Plains Western Corn Belt in the United States and in uh, the Canadian provinces, provinces out west, I pronounced that wrong, right, uh, out west, and then it's very, very hot in Australia, where Dave is, so I said to myself, you know, hey, I'd like to, I would like to have something that, you know, that really could, that really both sides of the thermometer could really uh, latch onto whether it's real hot or real cold. And even though the other topics that we discuss on the show uh, applies to everyone, but for instance, the, sh- uh, the show I did a few weeks back about cold start, that obviously is not going to apply to anybody in Australia right now. And I don't even think it will apply much in the winter from what I could know about their uh, weather patterns, but I may be wrong. <clears throat> so it, what I was basically going to do so I said to myself, what would be something that both that audiences around the globe could latch on to? And I came up with a topic that was very timely, or, uh, or I believe it is, and it's to understand, truly understand, the cooling system of an engine. And I have to say that over my years of working within the agricultural community and the automotive community, both on the uh, 
OE level and then also on the what I'll say the hot rod or performance level of the agricultural agricultural of the uh, automotive community that I uh, always have a good deal of questions asked to me about engine cooling and that goes from a combine to a street rod to a to a family car to a minivan to a pickup truck and everything for everything in between to a uh, a water-cooled or liquid-cooled lawn tractor so I figured Dave in Australia would be able to latch on to this in the extreme high temperatures there and the other people throughout the United States and Canada and rest of parts of the world that are experiencing winter will find some value in it even though they may apply a little bit more to it as their temperatures start to warm up but you know the thing that comes down to play like anything in life is that you have to have an understanding it does not work on magic and no matter what you're talking about and you know we see this so much in agriculture uh this past week i took two classes in new jersey and i'm sure it's like that in other states i have to uh, take classes to uh, maintain my pesticide license and that gives me the opportunity or the ability i should say to purchase agricultural crop production chemicals or crop protection chemicals however you want to call it um I understand, I understand in some areas of the country, around the Chesapeake Bay, Maryland, Virginia, Delaware, they have not evoked it yet, but, and this may be wrong if somebody's listening uh, down there, but they're talking about you even having to have a license to buy fertilizer. And that is simply because the uh, all of the, uh, the uh, phos- uh, phosphorus and nitrogen running into the uh, Chesapeake Bay, which is really from the golf courses, not from farms, we won't go there. And, but in New Jersey, we have to maintain a license to buy our pesticides. And uh, I, so I have to take classes, like everyone else does, not just me. But I, was, I lost my train of thought there for a second. But anyway, uh, and they have something called core and category points, which even when they explain it to me, I really don't grasp. But I just know what I have to take. So last week, I took two classes. I took one out in Pennsylvania because they were supposed to be registered for New Jersey, but after I drove 185 miles to get there, the uh, podcast, of uh, the podcast, the, uh, the owner of the dealership uh, came up to me and said to me that New Jersey didn't accept their program for some reason, even though they had accepted it three, three years prior, every year in a row. So, but I was out there and that's I really, you know, my, my main thing is to learn the actual points become secondary because I could get enough points to maintain my license. Now, that's really an excellent class. It's at a, at a dealership called Zimmerman's and Beth, in Bethel, Pennsylvania, and they're a uh, IH dealer. What's interesting about Zimmerman's is they're uh, interesting for the East Coast is that they're just a farm equipment dealer. I mean, you can't buy a lawnmower there. You can't buy a chainsaw there. You can't buy a weed whacker there. Uh, they're just strictly, strictly farm equipment. So they're, they're uh, IH, and they're also a, a bunch of short-line companies. And when I was speaking to uh, James Zimmerman after the class, and the class is run by a very good, uh, knowledgeable man from Penn State University. And But I asked him how business was, because you always you hear so much negative news about the farm economy, this and that, and what have you. I'm not even going to go there. But... Uh, so anyway, so I said to him, How's, how was 2018? And I feel this is prudent for me to share it with you. And he says, it was great. 
and I, I almost fell over because I'm so used to hearing, you know, putting on RFD TV or, or, or rural radio or anything else or picking up the farm magazines and all this gloom and doom. And I'm not saying that there's not hard times. I, I'm not saying that at all. So please, please don't misinterpret that. But you know, you're going to push me over with Feather. I said, I said, it's great. He says, yeah, it was great. 2018 was a great year. As a matter of fact, they had a brand new 2019 Case Magnum. Uh, I think it was it was a pretty big one, like a 330 with uh, with duels all around, and it was brand new. And uh, it was at the uh, meeting there. It was going to be delivered to a farmer that does about 12 or 1300 acres of row crops in Pennsylvania. It's quite a big tractor for that size operation, but maybe he works it by himself. So who knows? But uh, I was very happy to hear that, and I wanted to pass that on to you and uh, and let you know. And as a side to that. You know, interestingly enough, and then I'm going to get into the subject matter, not waste your time, but, you know, over here in the Northeast, there was actually a benefit to a lot of, well, it's, it's sad, but I guess the flip side, everything is a double-sided cord, that the guys around here, New Jersey and Eastern Pennsylvania, and, all right, you're not going to believe this, they're getting five, five to six dollars, a little bit more than six dollars a bushel of corn. So, they're, even though they cry like a stuck pig, they're not hurting and uh and the reason for that being is that there's not that much grain produced here anymore and the grain is at a premium and so so these guys are you know they're five or six dollar and some of them are claiming they're getting a little bit more than six dollars a bushel and the second meeting i was at this week a farmer was there who farms about a thousand acres right by me uh, about 10 miles away and uh he's Last year was a bad year here for crops, like in so many places. And he said that he, he his production was down 40,000 bushels. So I said, wow. And we're having lunch at the Growmark FS meeting in Bloomsbury, New Jersey. And he said his production was down 40,000 bushels. He says, yeah, that cost me almost $250,000. And he said, $250,000? So he kind of, so he said, yeah. He says, I'm getting a little bit, a couple of cents more over $6 a bushel for corn. So uh, hopefully, God willing, that travels through the rest of the nation. But anyway, let's talk about engine cooling. And, you know, the thing about engine cooling is that I'm going to make this very simplistic, very simple, because, number one, it's a show, and it's a radio type of show, so I have no visual aids that I could show you to support it. But in this particular case, you really don't need it. And that's one of the reasons I choose a lot of my content, even though I would love to support it with a, with a visual aid. But I feel that if I could uh, hopefully, by God's grace, do a good job and be able to uh, explain it to you, that since there's such a level of familiarity with everything that I'm talking about, that, uh, that you'd be able to, to grasp what needs to be done. So what we're going to do is that we're going to take the cooling system of an engine and I'm going to break it down piece by piece. And, you know, I always say we, because as I said before, this is your show. This is not my show. And I'm talking to you, and I want you to feel like I'm talking to you right over the, your toolbox or the fender of the pickup truck or sitting on the tailgate or whatever. So, you know, keep in mind that this is your show. It is not my show. So that's why it's always we, because we're going to do this together. I'm not doing this alone. I'm doing this with you. So <clears throat> let's talk about cooling system. Now, there is a very common, common misunderstanding about engine cooling. 
And that misunderstanding is what sets the tone for the total misdiagnosis of a cooling system issue. Because, so we're going to start there and then I'm going to back up. Most people think that the radiator cools the engine. The radiator does not cool the engine. The radiator removes the heat from the liquid coolant. The liquid coolant is what actually takes the heat out of the engine. So once you look at it that way, you now put the you change the, the position of the metaphorical horse and the cart. Because if you think that the radiator cools the engine, then if you have a overheating problem or a problem with the engine running hot, then you're going immediately to the radiator. And I'm not saying that in some instances that the radiator cannot be at fault. But it is not, its purpose, its total existence is to cool or remove the heat from the liquid. So it's the liquid's job to go into the engine, right? Because what courses through the engine? The liquid. And within the industry, we call the liquid the water. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to use that term for you today as the show goes on because it's even though it's a, a, a glycol-based product today, very few people are running pure water in anything. But a glycol-based product, say that fast ten times, uh, it is, uh, we call it the water. And that's why it's still called a water pump because it's it's still going back to the old days when they just ran water. But anyway, so does the radiator go through the engine? No, the radiator does not go through the engine. The water, the liquid, goes through the engine. And the, and the liquid's job is to absorb the heat. So just like a combine's job is to harvest the crop, and the grain wagon that pulls alongside the combine and it stores some in its hopper and then when the hopper is full it gets pumped out into the or augured out is a better the proper term right augured out into the grain cart and then the grain cart be it a truck or a cart pulled by a tractor pulls that and removes that removes that product that that harvest be it corn soybeans wheat whatever from the field and either brings it to a bin or a grain elevator or what have you so the combine is harvesting the grain cart is transporting it the liquid in the liquid is removing the heat from the engine and then the radiator is re, is emptying the heat so think of it that way like you're emptying the grain cart you're emptying the grain cart to go back along this combine to be able to take what it has harvested so the combine is storing the, the product and the coolant is storing the heat and then it's storing the heat as it goes through the engine and then it's going to be going to the radiator and the radiator is going to dissipate the heat so now that is the first or major misconception that we need to uh, address so just think of it this way and to prove that that is correct many of you may have a boat or a wave runner or what have you that is liquid cooled but has no radiator and it has no radiator because it takes lake water or sea water or river water whatever you want to call it fresh water into the engine and uses that as a coolant and dumps it out so basically if you have a a open that's called an open cooling system versus a closed cooling system if you have an open cooling system on your wave runner and i love those things those are so much fun i always want to take my wife on one 
And then about 10 years ago, we went down to North Carolina to Lake Norman, and that's a damned lake. It's a made man lake because there's a nuclear power plant there. And uh, a lot of NASCAR drivers have homes there around the lake. Absolutely gorgeous. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful lake. And uh, so we rented a wave runner. We rode around for about two hours. I love those things. It's fantastic. But anyway, uh, they are fantastic. And that's it. Uh, but the wave runner took lake water in, ran it through the the engine and then spit it out so the actual lake lake norman became the radiator because that was it was exchanging it was taking the heat out of the liquid that the water that was in the engine of the wave runner and it was t- dropping its temperature i mean yes albeit it was going into this huge lake that's i don't know 100 acres or something or bigger and then it was pumping cooled water back into it all right so we have that now we have the re- so we have the coolant, we have the water pump, we have the pressure cap, we have the radiator, and we have the thermostat. So we have one, two, three, four, five components that make up the cooling system on any engine, regardless of what it is. All right. So let's go through these one by one. The coolant's job, as I said, is to absorb the heat in the engine and to carry that heat, like the combine going through the field, carrying the corn in its, the harvested corn in its hopper, and then waiting for the grain cart to come and, 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 and auger it into it. So the coolant, now the chemical composition of the coolant is very important for all intents and purposes today. And I did a show on this a while back about the different color antifreezes. And basically it's how they interact with the components in the engine. That's why they exist. But water by itself is not a good coolant. And it's not a good coolant because once it starts to boil it loses its ability to truly transfer heat. So it has a very low boiling point at atmospheric pressure around 212 degrees. So it loses its its uh, ability to transfer heat. And then also water has two other components to it. Um, if, I, if, if, if you have a detection, we stop, I have to clear my throat. There's two other components of a coolant to make an effective coolant. Uh, and I'm talking about the technical aspects, not the ability to freeze. All right, so we have, we want an elevated boiling point, and we need to have a coolant that is more slippery. So it as this, it, in engineering, we call it surface tension. So if you were to think of, let's say, uh, years ago, we used to have a lot of metal roof barns in New Jersey. They were bank barns, traditionally built into a bank, and they would have a metal roof on them. And then you'd have to paint the roof, and a lot of people painted the roof with silver paint. And if you and you know, and as farmers used to say, silver paint goes on like gasoline; it's so thin. And if you were to be painting the roof with silver paint, it had a propensity to run. And people used to say that it was so thin. Yes, it's it it was thin, as far as we'll use the term viscosity, even though it doesn't apply to it. But the thing about the silver paint was that it had a very low surface tension due to its composition of, of, of pigments that made it silver. And what surface tension is, is the liquid's uh, ability to either cling to or release from uh, as it's being moved or poured. So like the old 
the oath, saying, you know, slow, the slow as molasses in January. So if you were to take a liquid and it poured very easily and released from its container, then you would say it has a very low surface tension. If the liquid, let's say like ketchup, ketchup has a higher surface tension because if you take it and you try to pour it out, right, it's moving very, very, very slowly because it's gripping to the surface of the container. So what happens is that the metric, which means the measurement scale that is used for surface tension is dynes, D-Y-N-E-S, per centimeter just so you know what that term is. Then surface tension and dynes per centimeter is something that is registered with, with, with many different liquids. I mean, there's, there's a surface tension of a, uh, of a pesticide or a herbicide or a liquid fertilizer that you put into your spray tank. We really don't talk about the surface tension of that, but one of the purposes of a jar test is not only to see whether the the the, um, the cocktail, the tank mix partners will stay in solution, but you also want to see if they're going to be able to pour or move, because if you happen to mix a couple of things together and they have a very high surface tension, then it, what is going to occur is that it's going to be harder for that pump to pump that through the sprayer, so you're going to need to have a higher pressure to move the same amount of volume because it's hard for it to push. It's going to want to cling to the pump, cling to the hoses. But more importantly, it's not going to discharge the same way from the nozzle or sprayer tip, whatever you want to call it. All right. So the thing is that, but we really don't look at surface tension because so many of the agricultural chemicals we use are so biased towards water, right? Uh, bias towards having a higher amount of water than the actual active ingredient in the product. So, but there is a difference in surface tension. And, and the thing is that you're probably going to see that coming down the road as spraying becomes more accurate. And we have all of these, you know, um, these spraying systems that do cycle and pulse. But anyway, the surface tension is the is the liquid's ability to to release a low surface tension means it releases very easily like milk coming out of a jug releases very easy low surface ten tension high surface tension a lot of friction is ketchup coming out of a bottle alrighty so the thing is that with the coolant it's very important that the surface tension is low enough for the coolant to not only push through the engine easily all right, but also to be able to release in the cylinder head, the port of the cylinder head, what we would call the water jacket, and where the coolant actually gets has its highest thermal load induced because of combustion. So we have the surface tension we have to be concerned with, we and we have the freeze point we have to be concerned with, we have the boiling point that we have to be concerned with, and we also have to have a coolant that will not interact negatively, we'll call it antagonistic as we would with a sprayer, spray, spray tank partners, mix, all right, and not antagonistically with the components in the engine, all right, and now the, probably I didn't count them, the fifth component is it needs to be as environmentally sound as possible. So that is what makes up an engine coolant, and if you look at water by itself, I mean, any liquid will absorb heat, 
I mean, you could put milk on a stove and boil it. You could put you could put ketchup on a stove. You boil it. You could put iced tea on a stove. You could boil it. All right. You could put lemonade on a stove. You could boil it. So any liquid will absorb heat, but its ability to hold enough heat and have a higher boiling point without freezing uh, too soon is what is the protocols that are for a a uh, a satisfactory. I'll use that word engine coolant. And then what you will see is that the the common the common the industry standard throughout the world is to have water with mixed with some type of glycol, be it ethylene glycol or pro- propylene glycol, and some kind of glycol. And what the glycol basically does is it reduces the amount of corrosion, it lowers the freezing point, it raises the boiling point. It raises the boiling point and also decreases the surface tension at dynes per centimeter so that the coolant can release through the casting of the cylinder head easier and be easily around that's a word maybe it is and pump it through the engine alrighty the next thing I want to talk about is the pressure cap the purpose of the pressure cap is twofold one is to raise the operating pressure within the cooling system and because for every pound that you raise the liquids pressure the pressure on the liquid in the coolant regardless if it's a milk or antifreeze that's in the radiator all right it will if for every pound that you raise the pressure you will add three degrees to the boiling point so basically in essence if you had a 15 pound cap on a system running pure water times three right that's 45 plus 212 degrees which is the boiling point of water at atmosphere all right so if you had a 15 pound radiator 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 cap all right on a a system running pure water it would boil at 257 degrees which is 212 at, at atmospheric pressure at sea level 212 plus 45 which is 15 pounds times 3 degrees for every pound, add them together, it comes to 257 degrees. And so at water, and the 15 pounds of pressure at, at sea level will boil at 257 degrees, without any pressure will boil at 212 degrees. So you're with me so far? Hey, this is uh, whatever, uh, physics physics or chemistry class from junior high school or middle school depending upon what you called it alrighty so the pressure cap is used to raise the boiling point of the coolant alrighty now what's going to happen is the other part of the pressure caps job and why it's creating pressure is because we just spoke a minute ago about the surface tension of the liquid that if we have a higher pressure if we have 15 pounds behind this liquid in that cooling system that 15 pounds is going to help overcome the surface tension that dines per centimeter and move that coolant through the engine because you remember you have to move that coolant through the engine and the it's it's going to absorb heat and then it needs to move away and it gets it needs to go into the radiator to exchange that heat so pressure cap two jobs raise the boiling point and then help move the coolant through the engine years ago people used to say with the farmers mechanics oh you got an old vehicle right you got an old vehicle uh old engine you got an old tractor put a 
Take the 15-pound cap off, put a 7-pound cap on so you don't stress the system. Well, you just lowered the boiling point of that liquid. And the other thing you basically did is that not only you, you allowed for less ancillary help of the pressure to push the coolant through the engine and you actually limited the amount of throughput the flow through the engine the water pump was turning the same right the same speed because that's mechanically linked to the crankshaft speed but the the gallons per minute of coolant flow actually decreased because it did not have the help of the pressure in the cooling system Alrighty, so we have that we have the radiator the radiator's job, I will reiterate, is to is to reduce the temperature of the coolant that came out of the engine. So I like to call the radiator the rest and relaxation for the soldier. The liquid being the soldier, the soldier goes to battle. It's going through the engine, absorbing the heat. It comes into the radiator. That's R&R. It takes a vacation. It cools off, and then it comes, and it cools off, and then it goes back into the battle, which is cooling the engine. So that is the purpose of the radiator. Now, as far as the radiator is concerned, another misconception is that they think, they people think that the radiator's job is to drop the coolant temperature 100 degrees well 60 degrees or 70 degrees now you're not going to want to believe me when i tell you this but it's true that the radiator on almost every application is only designed to reduce the liquid temperature the in and out liquid temperature around 20 degrees f so that's all it's designed to do so if it's getting liquid in at 200 degrees then it's only going to design it's only designed to drop the temperature on the, at to about 180 degrees all right so it's only designed for a 20 degree drop but the caveat that i want to attach to this is that the radiator is designed to do that at peak torque of the engine when it's producing the most power because and it has the most cylinder fill a couple of shows back i did i did one on volumetric efficiency so an engine produces the peak torque when it has the highest volumetric efficiency and that will be the highest thermal load because horsepower torque is heat an engine is a heat pump that'll be the highest thermal load so the radiator is designed to drop the liquid temperature about a maximum of around 20 degrees under the highest thermal load so for instance you're out pulling a, a well, we're not going to say a chisel plow anymore because plowing is taboo, right? So, um, so let's say you're pulling a uh, a strip till, a big strip till unit, right? And you're pulling this big strip till unit, and you're you're in Australia where Dave is, and it's you know, it's 120 degrees out. It's 120 degrees out, and you're pulling this strip till, and you got that, and he sells New Holland, so we'll say that New Holland T8. That new that baby's really working, right? Boy, she's up on the pipe. That turbo is spinning, making boost, man. You got the AC going. It's nice and cool in there. That turbocharger housing, you don't see it's glowing red. And this baby is pulling. She's running sweet with that engine, right? And she's and she's working hard in this hot in this hot day. Well, what's going to happen 
is that that coolant, if it comes out of that engine at 210, 220 degrees, it's most likely only going to be down about 20 degrees at that particular point as it exits the radiator. And the size of the radiator will help drop the coolant temperature more. But if you look at a modern tractor or a modern truck, and, and I'm saying those instead of a car, cars the same thing, but you if you look the radiator is usually the last thing you have the intercooler you have the air conditioner condensed you may have a, a oil cooler there so this air is already heated before it gets to that radiator but the thing is that it's if we could drop the temperature about 20 degrees and the chemical composition of that coolant is able to have a high boiling point and a low surface tension, then that's going to be all fine. And Dave is going to be running that T8 in that hot Australian sun, pulling that soil warrior. I don't know if he sells those, soil, but they are sweet. <clears throat> soil warrior, warrior, strip till unit, and everything is going to be, as we say back east, copaesthetic. Everything is going to be fine, right? I sound like I'm on the Sopranos when I say copaesthetic, if anybody ever watched that show. But now Dave is going to leave the field and go back to the farmhouse. So the chisel, the uh, soil warrior comes up, right? It goes on its wheels, and now he's going down the down the road to the farmhouse, and the engine is not working as hard. At that particular point, that radiator may drop the liquid temperature 40 degrees, because the 20 degree standard is at peak load. All right, so that is important to understand, and there's many many elements of the design of a radiator to allow it to be efficient and I'm going to eventually do a show on that and I have an article on my Farm Machinery Digest website under the learning series about that and just because it looks the same uh, physically the outside and all the bolt holes line up and all the holes holes line up and the hoses line up and everything does not mean that it has the same what we would call in engineering BTU per horsepower hour of rejection and BTU is a caloric measure a heat or and we, sometimes we put an air conditioner a cooling measure but people don't realize it's actually talking about the amount of heat that could be removed not how cold the air is right so British thermal units are metric to measure caloric heat right so that so a radiator and that's why I strongly suggest that if you have any piece of equipment a, a car farm truck I don't care sprayer and the radiator needs to be replaced then you really sh you need to buy a major a name brand you don't price shop it and get one from china because it's two hundred dollars cheaper and look i'm not rich i don't want to spend two hundred dollars the more than i have to but you need to get in either an from an oe style company or the actual OE radiator, because if not, in almost every instance, you're going to lose BTU per horsepower hour of coolant, and that engine is never going to run as cool or as properly as it should. And keep in mind that if you are running that engine at higher liquid temperatures, all right, even though it's not overheating, higher liquid temperatures, you're stressing everything in that engine, specifically the cylinder head, because uh, if it's an aluminum cylinder head, which most big diesel farm equipment would not have, but aluminum cylinder head, but even a cast iron head, if it has a pressed-in valve seat, and you are constantly overheating that area around the valve seat, which would not be shown on the temperature gauge, all right? The 
the liquid temperature gauge is not going to show that, then what will happen over time, that valve seat will drop out. And it's usually the exhaust seat. The valve seat will drop out and then it'll collide with the valve and the piston and bingo, the whole thing is uh, ready for the junk man, a $40,000 engine. Alrighty, so the radiator is going to cool the liquid. Now there's two types of radiator designs today. Years ago there was more, but we usually identify them by where the water goes in and the water goes out. So we have a downflow radiator, which would mean that the heated liquid comes from the engine and goes into the radiator and gravity feeds down water falls down and then the bottom hose exits the radiator the cooled liquid the cooled water to go back into the engine and then we have what's called a cross flow radiator and the cross flow was actually designed by by the Harrison division of General Motors in Lockport New York probably in the 1960s most farm equipment does not use a cross flow radiator and a cross flow radiator will have the tubes, the tanks on the side and the tubes will go across horizontally and then so the top hose would still be the uh, the exit from the engine and the bottom hose the return to to the engine of the of the temperature drop the, the thermally uh, reduced coolant but the cross flow radiator uh, one of the reasons that they came out with the cross flow radiator in cars was to be able to drop the hood line so you don't need to have as high a hood and for aerodynamics and for visibility that is really not the issue with any piece of farm equipment so in in many ways the uh, the downflow radiator has the possibility of being uh, more efficient because of the natural flow of the liquid from gravity, whereas the cross flow, uh, excellent design cross flow, but it's done more to take advantage of a lower radiator height. So we have that. So now what we're going to do is we're going to move on to the water pump. The water pump's job is to circulate the coolant throughout the whole system which is the engine the heater core if applicable the radiator and pump it through all right so it is either belt driven or some engines you may have a gear driven pump on some big industrial type of diesels but for the most part it's belt driven and on some newer engines not in farm equipment but you may actually see an electric water pump but the water pump is what's job is like a well pump and it's going to it's a, centri a centrifugal or centrifugal however you want to pr pronounce it and it is pump and its impeller is it has a volute like a turbocharger we discussed that in the last show and volute like a turbocharger and it's going to move the coolant through the whole system and now keep in mind that if you have an, and you're, probably, you're not going to probably find this on a farm tractor or any type of true agricultural equipment, you'll find this issue potentially on like an older irrigation engine or a grain truck or something like that or a pickup truck, is that there is a ratio that is designed into this, uh, designed into the water pump, all right, as far as its speed is concerned. So just like you have a PTO, and you say PTO, 540 RPM PTO, 600 RPM PTO. So if you have a piece of equipment like a, a, a mower that needs to run the most efficiently, it's designed to have everything run at 540 RPM PTO speed. Well, the same thing happens with a water pump, is that the, the ratio 
of the size of the water pump pulley to the crank pulley is paramount to the effectiveness of the water pump all right now and why I'm bringing this up is that, for instance, let's say you had an old Chevy or an old Ford grain truck or an old engine on irrigation system, and you may have had this truck for years or may have picked it up 15, 20 years ago, who the heck knows. And at one particular point, something happened to that water pump pulley or something happened to that crankshaft pulley on a harmonic dampener. And, and you know, we'll, use, we'll pick on Chevy because they were so interchangeable. Ford did not have the level of interchangeability or Chrysler that Chevy did, but your Ford had the least and Chevy had the most. So, you know, the father says to the son, hey, Ray, go over there. You, you messed up that pulley on the water pump. We got that old impala sitting over there. That's got a small block in it. Or that's got a whatever. Take that, pu take that pulley off of there and put it on there. We got this truck running or this irrigation pump running, right? And you look at the pulley and you don't measure it. And you put it on, the bolt holes are in the same place because that goes onto the flange of the water pump or onto the crankshaft, onto the harmonic balancer. You put it on there, you put the belt on, you start it up, it's running, and you say, son of a gun, you know, this thing runs harder than it used to. Well, it, there is a ratio between the two. And on most production engines, and why I'm saying is that you usually find this in that type of application, or an older truck or irrigation motor or something like that, because there are so many possible pulley combinations that someone could have got from a junkyard, or as I said the example, pull it off another engine, is that is that you uh, you could easily swap that. I mean, you're not going to go do that probably on a on a Hagee sprayer with a with a a Cummins in it, a 6BT Cummins, but on an older type of gasoline engine or something like that, you it lends itself to it to pick an old piece out of a junkyard or a scrap pile and put it on there. So very easy to determine that you will have, the industry wants a minimum of about 1.2, 1.3 ratio, so the water pump should spin about 1.2 times, 1.3 times faster than the crank pulley. But if let's say if you have an old... 427 gas motor in a uh, or, an, or an old 390 Ford in a big grain truck, an F600, right? That water pump pulley, because of the thermal load in an engine, that may be a two to one ratio. So they may be spinning that pump twice as fast as the crankshaft because they know that that truck is going to be loaded, it's going to be loaded, right? And it's going to be on the high thermal load. That means high heat, right, making a lot of power to move the load and minimal airflow across the radiator because, hey, if you put 10 or 12 tons on one of those old gas jobs, you found out where the hills were real quickly, right? So whereas that same motor, that same 390 Ford, basically that same basic architecture in a Torino would maybe have a 1.1 to 1.1 ratio. And... <clears throat> As an aside to this, because I know there's a lot of hot rod farmers out there that are listening to this, you know, people used to say that the old muscle cars used to overheat. They ran hot, not because they had a high horsepower big motor, because from the factory, they used to run those water pump pulley ratios at one to one, because they didn't want the pump to overspeed and cavitate at high RPM. So they used to run them one to one, and so there was, and whereas it should have been 1.2, 1.3, 1.41, same family style motor, right, in a truck or an industrial application, may have ran the water pump at 2.1 to the crank speed, 
So that is very important if you have an old engine laying around. Very simple to determine. You, you do the best you can to measure it with a tape measure, and you want to try to look and look at the two pulleys and see where the belt rides at that at that distance at that depth. All right, and you div and you take you measure the crank pulley. You measure the water pump pulley and you divide them out and that will give you the ratio. So if you have an old engine, or I know there's uh, a guy that I follow and he follows me on Twitter. He's a farmer. Excuse, forgive me, I don't know his name. And he's putting together a uh, look like a little small block Ford for an older like F100 pickup truck. That's ripe for having the wrong pulley ratio on it. All right, because he's got the pulley from this. It's a 1966. Oh, I got a pulley from a 72 Torino. Whatever, they all fit on there beautifully, painted up nice. So before you do anything, if in doubt, if you have any questions, measure the pulley ratio and divide them out. It's not rocket science. And then the last component that we're going to talk about is... <clears throat> the thermostat and the thermostat's job is to to quicken hasten the warm-up of in the end of the of the engine all right and also to maintain the temperature so now keep in mind that an engine likes cold air and a warm block or we'll say a hot block that's what it likes so the purpose of the thermostat is to get that engine is to up to operating temperature as quickly as possible and it does that by blocking the liquid flow to the radiator so when the thermostat is closed the water is circulating in the engine block and that's why an engine will have a bypass hose or a bypass passage that you may not see that's internal and allow the water to flow and circulate and then as the temperature is exposed the liquid temperature is exposed to the thermostat it starts to open and the stamping on the thermostat, the temperature rating, 180 degrees, is what is called the crack open temperature. That is just as the thermostat will start to open and start to flow coolant to the radiator. It is not digital. It opens in a linear fashion. So you, so it's going to open a little, and as the coolant gets hotter, 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 it's going to go f fully until it reaches fully open, a full deflection. And... As an aside to that, the way that thermostats opens is not the spring. It is spring-loaded to close the thermostat, and actually on there's what is called a wax motor in the thermostat. It's a piece of wax, and it's a special piece of wax. It's not candle wax, and there's a chamber there, and the pintle, the pin from the thermostat that actually acts on the valve, is connected to that chamber. That's why they call it a motor, a wax motor. And what it does is that as, as the thermostat is exposed to the, the coolant coming up to temperature, what will happen is that the wax will start to melt. And since the liquid is incompressible, the, the thermostat, the melted wax in this wax motor, it's a chamber. It's not a motor that doesn't have a crankshaft and pistons. And, but because it's doing work, they call it a motor, it will push on that pin and will actually open that valve in the thermostat the poppet it's called the poppet against the spring pressure and when you have a thermostat that doesn't fully open it's because it that seal started to leak and the wax some of the wax leaked out so it doesn't have the rate of expansion conversely if you're going down the road and all of a sudden the temperature spikes because the thermostat slammed closed that's because that seal failed 
and the wax melted and now there's, there's no wax there's no incompressible liquid in that chamber it's like a hydraulic system there's no incompressible liquid so boom the spring closes it all right and that's what happens and if you actually if you actually thermally shock an engine by letting it get too hot like you're changing the coolant and peak the temperature you lots of times we call it a thermal excursion in engineering you lots of times will damage that seal and shortly thereafter that thermostat will fail or let's say your wife is coming back from town and it throws the belt off the uh off the water pump right throws the belt off the water pump and then we come in there and then a, a day or two later after you after you put the belt on the thermostat engine overheats because the thermostat fails because the wax pellet dripped uh the wax pellet leaked out so the thermostat's job is to maintain the temperature of the engine regardless of the thermal load. And that's why a lot of big diesels have two thermostats, because what they basically do is that they run the coolant two different ways, because remember that the, that the amount of heat rejection that's required is based upon the load. So when the engine is loafing, it runs through one thermostat, and then when the coolant level starts to raise up, it opens the other thermostat and sends more of the coolant to the radiator. So that is what the dual thermostat does. So its purpose is to bring the engine up to operating temperature as soon as possible, build heat for the passenger compartment, and not allow thermal swings in the engine. So when the when you're going down the road under light load that thermostat may start to close because remember the rating is the crack open temperature and it takes about 10 to 15 degrees some thermostats 20 for it to be fully open so a 180 degree thermostat will not be fully open to around 100 185 so if you're coasting down the mountain and the liquid temperature drops down to 168 that thermostat is starting to close and restrict some of the flow and the purpose of that is to maintain an, a stable temperature inside the engine for the proper combustion and to not have the temperature swing all over the place and the last part which we did not discussed in the beginning which I neglected to but I think of it as the part of the water pump even though in lots of instances today is not is the fan and the fan be it electric or be it be be it electric or be it mechanically driven somehow off a belt or a hydraulic motor in some applications what have you is simply meant to aid in the efficiency of the radiator and to have more air throughput all right uh, through the radiator so that the the actual in the radiator the liquid flows through the tubes and the fins touch the tube and the fin is what actually creates the heat dissipation so if we could have more air flowing through this radiator then what will happen is that we will have it become more efficient because there'll be more of what we call a delta t a temperature differential there's more air throughput so there'll be more heat rejection into the air so to recap this very simply before I get into our special delivery segment we have the coolant is what's going to remove the heat the radiator cap is going to raise the pressure of it for two things number one to raise the boiling point three degrees for every one psi and to also have the coolant push easier through the engine so that because of the surface tension of it the radiator's job is strictly to to 
let the coolant rest, remove the heat, and send it back into the engine. On the peak thermal load, it's only designed to have, if it, it's a satisfactory design, has, let's say, we'll say a 20 degree drop in temperature, 10 to 20 degrees under peak thermal load. The water pump's job is to move the coolant through the engine and the heating system so that the coolant gets heated and then releases and goes through the radiator to cool and then comes back to work so it's like a soldier going back into the battlefield and the thermostat's job is to basically have hasten the warm-up bring temperature or heater performance and to also have thermal stability in the engine Alrighty. So that is that. And as always, if you have any questions about this and or about this or anything else, please feel free to contact me at hotrodfarmer at farmmachinerydigest.com. And now we're going to get into our special delivery segment. And, you know, like always, this is brought to you by Firestone Ag. You know, and a lot of guys, you know, th- I'm not trading in the equipment or to buy in some equipment at, at auction or what have you and some, some newer equipment that they have. And, you know, when it comes to think about tires, I truly want you to think about Firestone Ag. And I'm saying this sincerely because, you know, these guys, and this is no knock on anybody else uh, by no means, but, you know, I've had a lot of exposure to Firestone Ag. And as I said before in the show, that I vet everybody that gets involved with this show because I want to have products or organizations or groups that, that are cut from the same cloth that I am. And, you know, Harvey Firestone was a farmer. And that that mindset of a farmer, that that American ingenuity is still so prevalent and will never go away from Firestone Ag because they even do their testing for all their tires on Harvey Firestone's old family farm and Brad Harris either their lead engineer or if not he's very close to the lead engineer he's a farmer himself so when you look at that 23 degree tread the bar tread bar design which is basically the you know the 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 high water mark for tire tread bar instead of a 45 degree that most people have the 23 degree tread bar design whether it's the normal depth or the extra deep one and an ad2 technology that's born of the passion of farming and you know that tire with the nine year with the nine year guarantee is really something that 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 you could put your faith in and with those with that ad2 technology that if and vf it's so important for that soil compaction so i ask you all I ask you to do is that this podcast in part is brought to you by Firestone. So when it comes time to look at tires, I'd say give Firestone a serious hard look. Look at the others, and if you look with true eyes, you'll be putting Firestones on your farm. And as they say, you'll be farming hard. So, alrighty, I have a letter here if I could find it. And uh, this gentleman is from... Uh, where is he from? Uh, just says Nebraska, and his name is Paul Huffman, and he's basically, uh, I'll just paraphrase his question because I'm running short on time, and he says to me that he wanted to know what stall speed is on a torque converter in an automatic transmission because he had a problem with his pickup truck, and he had the transmission rebuilt, and they changed the torque converter and it didn't perform right afterwards. Basically, in simplistic terms, stall speed is the amount of slip that the torque converter 
allows until the stator and the turbine engage. A torque converter is almost like a turbocharger inside. It has a stator and a turbine. And the way you would determine the stall speed is to hold one foot on the brake and then and, and for legal purposes chalk the wheels and put the parking brake on and then slowly raise the RPM of the engine with the transmission in drive. At one particular point the RPM will no longer increase and at the point that the RPM no longer increases is what is called the stall speed of the converter. So it will allow the engine to get to that RPM uh, under its highest load that RPM and allow the engine to get to that speed to get into its power band before it starts to transfer the 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 energy from the flywheel through the transmission so that is the stall speed and it's very easy for you to check there's a specification for it in every shop manual and most production vehicles like a pickup truck would probably have an older one like about a 17 or 1800 rpm stall speed and then maybe a newer one may have a little bit higher but the thing is that if you have an en you have a trans an engine that seems very doggy uh it's real dead you know off the line you're trying to pull a load it acts like it's lugging and the stall speed on the converter is too low and as the converter starts to fail if it starts to fail and that relationship between the stator and the turbine and also the flow because of the hydraulic system there's a pump in the automatic transmission starts to fail it's very possible most of the times the way it defaults is that to have a low low stall speed when we were in college i had a friend glenn Ladell, and he bought a he bought a uh an older well it was only a few years old at the time but uh 1975 buick century uh, with a turbo 350 in it, and it was a gorgeous car, but it had a bad torque converter. I mean, it couldn't, you could not actually, you could not go up on a set of ramps. You could not <laughs> drive itself up onto a set of ramps. And um, when it, once it got going 20, 30 miles an hour and you whacked it, it was fine. It, it went like stink. But it could not even get up, you know, those ramps that you buy in, the, in, in Sears at the time to change oil. It couldn't get up the, up the ramps. It would ping and knock and the motor wouldn't rev. And that's basically the essence. So the stall speed is akin to an automatic transmission slipping its clutch out like you would a manual to get the load going. So listen, I want to thank you so much for uh, tuning in today. I guess you tune in or click into these podcasts. And I want to thank you so much. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully delivering an entertaining and educational show next week. And next week is Commodity Classic. So if anybody is going, please come see me at the Firestone booth. So my show will go out before Commodity Classic. And uh, that's down in Orlando. So stop by and say hello. And But most importantly... Thank you for listening. Thank you for communicating with me. I apologize to Dave in Australia for butchering up the name of his town or the dealership group. Probably not the name of his town. And I want you to know, as always, the Hot Rod Farmer is pulling for you, the American farmer and rancher and my beloved, beloved America. You have a blessed day, and I'll talk to you next week. And I'll be at Commodity Classic when you listen to this. So just think about that. Bye-bye.